Well, good morning. Um, if you would, go ahead and please turn with me to our gospel reading from Luke chapter 15, which I don't know how you read that without getting choked. <laughs> um, while you're turning there, let me tell you a story. When I was seven or eight years old, my older brother returned. And my brother's 15 years my, uh, my senior. And my older brother returned from a, t- a combat tour in the, from the first Gulf War. And, and my family, as you can imagine, was overjoyed um, at a safe return after not seeing him for well over a year. And while my brother was away, I, I, I think my mom may be more than anyone else uh, felt the real possibility that my brother may not return. You know, there's always a possibility when someone goes off into war. You know, at least that's her fear. And I think that's probably every mother's fear, maybe every wife's fear, every family member's fear when someone goes off like that. And when he eventually returned home, we were all, as you can imagine, just ecstatic, overjoyed. My brother had been restored to us. So naturally, we had to celebrate. We had to feast. My dad had two hogs from our farm slaughtered and prepared. One of the whole hogs was slow cooked. On Now, these details are important. One of the... I mean, you can't, just, you can't just say you had pork and not like, how did you have pork at a feast? One of these whole hogs was, was slow cooked on a spit, and the other, a Cuban friend of ours, cooked it in the ground for two days. We, we did things right when my brother came back. We had a feast. We celebrated. And of course, we invited all our family and friends and my brother's friends out to share in our joy celebrating his return. And while I'm sure that some people declined to come because of schedule conflicts and previous engagements, I doubt we had anyone say, why would you throw Clint a party? He was only doing what he was signed up to do. He didn't do anything especially brave. He didn't earn any medals. It doesn't make any sense to throw him a party. I mean, just hearing that hypothetical, you intuitively sense the incongruity in it. Who would say that? Who would say that? Who would gripe about throwing one's son or one's brother a party for having returned home alive after being gone for so long? Yet we hear a very similar sentiment to this from the Pharisees and the scribes in Luke 15 verses 1 and 2. And look at these verses with me. They set the context for our gospel lesson this morning. Now the tax collectors, this is verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners, and let me just pause right there, sinners here is more than just a moral category. It certainly involves that, but, but but in this day and age, sinners would have been understood broadly also to encompass the poor. So think back to Luke 4, when Jesus is in the synagogue of Nazareth and he reads from the Isaiah scroll and he says, I have come to preach good news to the poor, to the downcast, the, the, the outcast, the trodden, those in prison. That's the, that's the group here encompassed in this claim of sinners and it's termed sinners. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Who would eat with sinners? Who would throw a party for sinners? Jesus then responds to their grumbling in Luke 15 by telling them three parables. And with these three parables, Jesus demonstrates the incongruity of their reaction to him eating with those sinners who were turning and drawing near to him. 
Isn't this the whole purpose of the Messiah? To come to preach good news so that those who needed it, so that sinners and tax collectors could turn and receive from him the goodness, the grace of God that he was offering, the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. Wouldn't that be reason enough to have a party? I think so. Jesus certainly thinks so. And so through these parables, Jesus demonstrates the incongruity of their reaction. Their incongruity of their reaction to the good news, the gospel message that Jesus was not only proclaiming with words, but embodying in actions by eating with these sinners. In each of these parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son, in each of these parables, Jesus portrays a common theme, which in reality is a storyline. And here's that theme. Something very precious and significant to someone was lost. That person diligently searched and waited in order to find or to receive again that which was lost. And finally, when that which was lost is found or received, the response is unbridled joy. Joy that is portrayed as a divine necessity, a divine imperative. It was necessary, necessary to celebrate. And Jesus gets straight to the point about joy at the conclusion of each parable. Just listen to these. Verse 7 of chapter 15. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Look down to verse 10. Just so I tell you. I mean, I think we're starting to get a theme here. There is joy before the angels of God. Who is before the angels of God? Who are the angels surrounding in heaven, around the heavenly throne? God himself. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then in Luke 15, verse 32, this is in the words that we heard this morning from the Father. And he here is speaking to his elder son. It was fitting. It was a necessity to celebrate and be joyful For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So in each parable, but especially especially in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus attempts to persuade the Pharisees to see his table fellowship with repentant sinners in the same light and in the same way that God the Father does with pure joy. How does God interpret Jesus' actions on earth, eating with these repentant sinners? With unbridled joy. Jesus leaves the parable open-ended, though. He does not tell us the elder son's response to the father's invitation to rejoice and come and celebrate. And in so doing, Jesus invites the Pharisees and scribes to take a seat at the table along with him, along with him and these filthy, dirty sinners to feast together in the joy of heaven, the joy of God the Father. And this invitation is still open for us today, for the older brothers, for all older brothers and sisters, for husbands and wives, for sons and daughters, for mothers and fathers, for friends, to experience the joy of heaven in our relationships with each other and with God. Right, Every reader that has ever come across Luke 15 and comes to the end is asking, well, how did he respond? 
And we're drawn into the story ourselves, the parable ourselves, and we're invited. How would we respond? Are we grumbling at the work of God? And Jesus' invitation here to the Pharisees and indeed to us this morning is not just to enter into this joy in some passive sense. Just, okay, I'll I'll go to the party, I'll sit down, I'll observe all that. No, Jesus invites us to live lives like the Father in the parable, like our Father in heaven, that pave the way for such joy. The joy at the celebration is an affirmation of the path to that celebration. It's an affirmation of the Father's action in response to His Son. And so here's the question I want us to ask of this parable. What is it about the Father in this parable that paves the way for such joy? What leads to such joy? What is the path to joy and indeed true life from the dead? Because that's the images that are used here of this son being restored. He rose up. That's the language of resurrection. He could go back to the Father. The Father receives him again and recognizes this son who in essence was dead to us because he cut himself off from us, is now alive again. What is it about the Father in this parable that paves the way for such joy? Well, up front we need to be clear. The occasion for this joy is the return of that which was lost. Whatever we say, that's the main point. It's about the return of that which was lost. In the terms of our lesson from 2 Corinthians 5, the occasion for this joy is that of reconciliation and new creation life. That's why heaven rejoices, because people are being reconciled to God and are being transformed into new creatures. New creation has come. In 2 Corinthians, Paul declares that we have been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus and have been made new creations. We were dead in our sins and and have now been made live, uh, live again in Christ. So there's an occasion for rejoicing. Likewise, the son in the parable was reconciled to the father, being brought back from the dead in essence. As we heard read, this your brother was dead and is now alive. From the perspective of heaven, all this, all of this, reconciliation, new life, is the occasion for great joy and feasting like we have not experienced on earth. But every little moments of feasting, even when we come around this table today, are experiences of it, proleptic experiences of it now. When you host people in your home and you celebrate the hospitality of God and extend that to others around your table, you are participating in some measure with the joy of heaven. But I don't want us to miss this fact That heaven rejoices over the repentance of sinners and their reconciliation with God the Father. Because each time that reconciliation occurs, a little bit more of this old world marked by sorrow and death is transformed into new creation life and marked by unbridled joy. That's the movement of God. That's the mission of God. To transform through acts of reconciliation. Repentance and forgiveness, reconciling, as Paul said, the world. God is at work in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting your trespasses against you. And every time that happens, however little and however big, little bits and pieces of this old world is being transformed and being captive, held captive by the new creation that is coming through Jesus Christ. 
So what is it about the Father? To get back to our overarching question, what is it about the Father that paves the way for this reconciliation that occasions such great joy and new life? The Father paves the way by engaging in what we can draw out of here is three practices. Three practices. First, the Father gives up his right to inflict punishment on his son implying a profound trust in God as the just and caring judge. Look at verses 12 and 13. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property in reckless living. The younger son has sinned against and deeply wounded his father and brought shame on him. I mean, this is, a, this is a profound sin against his father. When the father divided the property between the two sons and the younger son turned his share into cash, this must have meant that the land the father owned was split into two with a younger boy selling off his share to someone else. And you can imagine a culture that was so deeply connected to the land and to their inheritance. Their inheritance connected to the land of promise, which in some way was a connection to God. And for a son to take his portion early, to turn it into cash, and to take it out of his family's hands, and to put it and give it to someone else, sell it to someone else, was a profound sin against his family. The shame that this would bring on the family would be added to the shame that the son had already, to the shame that the son had already brought on the father by asking for his share of the inheritance before his father's death. It was the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. It's a profound breach of relationship here. A breaking of relationship. Under no obligation, despite the shame and wounds incurred, the father nonetheless complies with the son's demand instead of inflicting punishment. That in and of itself is just utter grace. This compliance with the son's demands is not generated from some sense of feebleness in the father. He is not portrayed as weak or impotent in this parable. Rather, the father gives up his right to inflict punishment here, implying a robust trust in God as the just judge. We see similar instances of this in the laments. And in the imprecatory psalms, when the psalmist is calling upon God to be the just judge, and it's using language, really raw language, but what the psalmist is not doing is taking into his own hands that vengeance to inflict punishment on the one who has sinned against him. Instead, in trust, in a deep and profound trust, he is turning it over to the Father. He trusts him to be the just and caring judge. And by giving up his right, the father, by giving up his right to inflict punishment, the father creates space in which God enters to discipline and bring the son to repentance and reconciliation. And God's discipline here comes in the form of the son bearing the consequences of his choice. Bearing the consequences of his choice. This wasn't the father affirming what he was doing by, not compl- by complying with it. It was the father, in one sense, turning him over to his own desires, to his own appetites. You can imagine the difficulty 
to make that choice. This choice that the father makes not to, or to comply does not mean that the father has written the son off or given up on him. Rather, the father engages in a second practice. He patiently waits for the son to return. Look at verses 17 through 20. But when he came to himself, this is referring to the son, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. God's persistent search for the sinner, emphasized in the parables of the lost sheep and the coin, is complemented now by the father's penitent, patient, and watchful waiting. Both are reactions to the things we've lost. Both are reactions to sinners. And we need wisdom from God to know when it's best to go after and when it's best to patiently wait and allow God to enter into that gap, into that space, and draw them back. The Father's waiting implies, again, a profound trust and confident hope in God that he will act to draw his son back in repentance. He's looking expectantly longing that God will do this work. His eyes are on the horizon, waiting patiently, hopefully. Now, this does not mean that every sinner will return. God is the just judge. He does not override sinners' agency or their will, their choice. However, God will be at work to draw a person back to himself in a myriad of ways. For those of us who are waiting for a spouse, a child, a friend, a sibling to repent and be reconciled to God and to us, we have reason to hope. Like this father, confidently, expectantly, looking to the horizon, waiting for that sun to come over the crest of the hill coming home. This hope is founded upon the God who made himself known by taking on human flesh to bear our sin and to be, for us to be reconciled to God. This is how God works, to draw every sinner back to himself and to be reconciled to their family and to their friends. Listen to what Paul said in, in our reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake... God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we can likewise patiently wait for loved ones to return, because our waiting is sustained by a confident hope in the God who was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. If God went so far out of his way to take on human flesh, take on human flesh, and enter into our brokenness, into the brokenness of many situations, like the one we see portrayed in this parable, and take on the sin that is done there. You have a confident hope. You have a confident hope that God will be at work and is at work in your particular situations to bring restoration, to bring reconciliation. He desires nothing more than that. He desires to draw people into his great banquet hall, to rejoice together, 
reconciled to God and to one another. That is reason enough to hope for those who are estranged from us, that if they have wounded us and sinned against us, that they will be drawn back by God. This leads us to the Father's third and final practice. He practiced compassionate forgiveness. Listen to Luke 15, verse 20 and following. His father saw him and felt compassion. He saw him and felt compassion. Jesus sees the, the widow, Nain, that she had lost her son, and he has compassion. The good Samaritan sees the broken and beaten man on the road, and he has compassion. The father likewise here sees his son coming over the hill, the one that he has been waiting for so long to see come over, and he, and he has compassion. He feels compassion, and that compassion pushes him to do something just dishonoring, unbecoming of a man his age to run. You don't see men in the Middle East running, especially not running to their sons or their daughters to hug them. This was not a practice in the ancient Near East or in the ancient Middle East and still isn't one today. It was unbecoming of a man to run like this in public. But he runs to his son, picking back up, and he ran and he embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father's compassion compels him to forgive his repentant son. And this forgiveness is an unbridled giving, an unrestricted giving of the father back to the son. That's what Christian forgiveness is, folks. It starts with a giving up of our rights to inflict punishment, whether that's increasing the guilt and shame on the one who has offended us or hurt us, notifying them of what they have done, to hurt us, and then when they confess and we forgive, that forgiveness has to be a total re-giving of ourselves back to them. Just as the Father does here. It's not, yes, you can come back and be a hired servant. No, you will be the son. You will be honored. You will be clothed. A ring on your finger, shoes on your feet. You will be my son again. The father does not here recriminate the son. He does not pay evil for evil. There is no reliving of the wounds to inflict further guilt and shame upon the son. Remember that the father here has already given up his rights to do so, entrusting himself in this situation to God. Rather, the father removes the son's guilt when he runs to him to embrace and kiss him. They are reconciled. Guilt is abolished and absolved. The father not only he doesn't stop there. Here's even more. The father also addresses the son's shame. And the father overwhelms the son's shame by clothing him with signs of sonship and honor. In the place of guilt, the son is given righteousness, a restored relationship. In the, replace, in the place of shame, the son is given honor as a son again. This reconciliation and restoration of the, of the repentant son is the occasion for great joy and feasting. We have reason to be glad and joyful this morning. All of this is exactly what God the Father has done for each of us 
through his son Jesus. He sent Jesus to reconcile us to himself by clothing us in the righteousness and the honor of his son Jesus. That's what we heard Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus has been reconciling us to the Father. We have now received his righteousness. We have received his honor, his place as a son. We are co-heirs with him in the family of God. Our guilt and shame have been washed away and replaced with the righteousness of Jesus. This is what happens in our baptisms. And this is what we celebrate and are nourished by when we come to the table, the feasting table, the banquet table of God each Sunday. To rejoice and be glad, not only that Jesus and the Father have reconciled us to himself, but that he is continuing that work in others and in our relationships. And so it not only calls us to be joyful, but it calls us to live that pathway out in our relationships with one another. We need to become the father in the story. Yes, we have been the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter. Now we are forgiven. We've experienced the joy of the father. Now we are called to live the life of the father. Not, not to inflict punishment, tit for tat, evil for evil on those who sin against us, but to give it up, relinquishing it to a just judge, the loving father, the God, the, the creator of the whole universe. And not only that, but waiting patiently or seeking fervently those who have wronged us for the good of God and his kingdom, for their own joy and glory and restoration, and then not even ending there, but when that person in God's grace returns and his mercy returns and repents, we freely and without any reservation give ourselves wholly back to them, restoring them to full relationship. Not being angry like the son, the elder son in the story. Not being bitter and grumbling and griping about what has been done to us. Because we don't see that in the Father. We don't see that in God. And we are called to be what we have been baptized to be. Image bearers of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.